0: This is the future of finance by Motive Labs. Hello, and welcome again to the future of finance, the podcast where we live and breathe the next generation of financial technology. Welcome to Paul Taylor, founder and CEO of Thought Machine. He's joining me here today looking at what they're doing in the marketplace. Paul has joined us for one of our discovery days. So he's had a busy morning already. Thanks for joining us, Paul. Thank you. Paul, before we we talk about Thought Machine, perhaps you could just give us a little bit of background as to your your own personal history.
1: Sure, yeah. It has nothing to do with banking for a start. I started in a very different place. First of all, I was an academic at Edinburgh University. I was studying speech technology, and in particular text-to-speech or speech synthesis. And for most of my 20s, I did that, and I was very much part of the AI and machine learning community compared to today that's a very oh, early days uh, a very different place i mean it was it was small and it was good fun and certainly there was very little commercial interest in it shall we say i founded my first company in 2000 it was called rhetorical systems to do text to speech that was acquired by nuance in 2004 i then had a second stint in academia where i was a visiting lecturer at cambridge university for 2 years I then did my second startup, basically the same thing, and again, did it for four years. That was acquired by Google in 2010. After that, I joined Google, and I was head of the speech technology team in London, and our text-to-speech system became part of the Google speech system overall. Right. And Google had invested a lot in speech recognition, but it, speech is a two-way conversation, so they didn't have anything to do with the speaking out. So basically, we were acquired, became part of that, the Google ecosystem, and then it was launched in 2012. That became the voice of everything in Google. So driving directions, voice-assisted technology, voice search. Wow, it, real imprint. Yeah, and it's quite amazing in a world where we've now got Siri and Alexa and Google Home. And kind of to be part of that is very rewarding. That was never the plan. Uh, That's
0: well, how all good plans turn out, isn't it? Yes,
1: yeah, <laughs> so where we ended up. I think it was very much a case of, you know, concentrating on the technology, making it as good as possible. And then the market changed around it.
0: Yeah, yeah and so from there, Thought Machine, how did that come about?
1: So when I was at Google, I decided I had enough of speech technology. It is actually very, very difficult. And the algorithms are difficult, but human language is very difficult. So I thought I would do something which I thought was simpler. So after my golden handcuffs at Google are out, I've left at the end of 2013. I had a little bit of time off, but I wanted to get into the fintech scene. I think fintech, for all the reasons that everybody knows, it, it's a booming business. London's the place to do it. So I found a thought machine obviously hired a bunch of my mates from Google straight away. And that was the funding of the company in the backbone. And for a certain extent, we looked around for what problem would be a good problem to solve. We were doing a few things in machine learning. We were doing a few things in personal finance. But in kind of mid-2015, we realized that there was a real problem with core banking. The legacy systems that banks used to underpin the technology was inflexible and expensive and cumbersome and was holding back the bank in all sorts of ways. So we kind of without much market research, shall we say, decided if we could build our own core banking engine from scratch using Google-style cloud computing technology, then we'd be on to a winner. So as I said, without really knowing quite what we're getting ourselves into, we, we decided to give it a go. And then, what um, a
0: project. I mean, as you say, there's been talk of this for a long time. And typically what you've seen is the traditional vendors try to take their existing core banking systems and sort of try and make them more cloud available, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. But it sounds as if you built cloud in from the, the start.
1: Yeah, so that is certainly a popular thing. And it is what you would expect banks to do. Mm. Um, User expectations change, and you have to have something where modern software can be developed on top of your platform. That can solve part of the problem, but it can't solve the full problem. So for example, if you take something like reporting in the bank. So compliance and reporting in the bank are a huge thing. But if you're extracting the data from old-style databases that aren't in real time and aren't in agreement with one another, you can have a difficult time On our platform, everything's real-time, everything's single source of truth, and all the financial reports for the bank, such as the balance sheet and the income statement, are all generated in real-time continuously. Mm. And that problem would be next to impossible to do with a legacy banking platform. So while certainly the customer proposition has been improved by having digital layers, if you want to call them that, it still doesn't solve everything in the bank. Furthermore, you do get into the processes whereby once you get off the happy path of user experience, it becomes more difficult. We're working with banks that have a lot of problems with joint accounts. The joint accounts were only set up so that you could either apply for a joint account together, but not serve as a circumstance where you had a single user account, and then somebody joined your, you got married or something and somebody joined your account. And things, I like guess, can be very, very difficult. So it doesn't take long before problems with core banking catch up with you again. It isn't just what you, I mean, core banking sounds like a bit of an indeterminate phrase, but that does include the customer records, it does include KYC data. So there's a lot of things in there that are quite close to the customer proposition that are still, uh, still affected by the legacy problems.
0: And in many instances, it's that... Um core banking system that's always used as the reason that you can't change quickly or adapt or deliver new services or whatever. And it seems to be a a, a mantra almost. So when you originally devised this idea, what was your target market? Were you looking at the startup banks, the challenger banks? Were you looking at existing
1: players? No, we were very much looking at the challenger banks. It it was a by being in the right place at the right time, the challenger banks really started to come on, you know, Monzo and Atom and various others. And they started to come on about the same time that we were formed. So I had conversations with many of them and realized that they didn't have any good options. Building the whole bank from scratch was a big endeavor. So Monzo did that, but they are tech companies. So so that, that's in their DNA and, and that's what be expected. But if a challenger bank is started by, you know, bankers or people from financial services, what are they expected to do? So very few options there. So I thought that the plan A would be we would build banks that were familiar to kind of tech entrepreneur style culture and then get that launched. And That was always there and and part of it. But luckily for us, the market's much bigger than we anticipated. So, I mean, I can only... Describe what conversations we've had, but of the conversations we've had, banks from all around the globe and all sizes and shapes that have contacted us wanting to do something different.
0: So that's not just challenger banks. You're also talking now about banks that have existing platforms, existing markets, but they're saying, I need to make a big change.
1: Yes. Uh, quite what they want to do varies from bank to bank. But I think most banks realize that sooner or later that that they are going to have to move platforms yeah I remember talking to one bank and they said, oh well, you know we're very reluctant to change and I said, well, do you think you'll still be running it?" like this in 20 years time. And they said, no, no, no. And I said, what about 10 years time? And they go, mm, maybe not. Mm. So, well, we're only now discussing when in the next 10 years you're going to move. So I think a lot of banks realize that they need to do something different. Quite what they want to do different varies from bank to bank. Some are launching greenfield banks. Some are doing a migration of part of a bank. So for example, their personal loan, part of the bank. So there's, there's very many different approaches, but there seem to be a lot of banks wanting to do something different.
0: I mean I could see the massive attraction in emerging markets um, particularly given the the situation that many of the emerging markets have far better telecommunications than than you'd expect, largely 4G and and fiber and things like that. But I can also understand that sort of slightly Less advanced regulatory environments would look at this whole cloud thing, and particularly data and and where it is and that sort of thing, with a, a slightly jaundiced view. Have you have you had experience in terms of trying to present to banking regulators this whole?
1: Yeah. So you touched on two things. So the emerging markets, I think that is very right for activity. Basically, you know, it is a cost play that if you use legacy banking technology and branches. You know, you have to be charging your customers, say, you know, the, the typical fee is $100 a year per user. And in many emerging markets, that's just not going to happen. Yeah. So if you're going to reduce that radically, then you can get the unbanked onto your system at some sort of reasonable cost. So, so that is a, a fascinating play. And wouldn't it be good if people can, like they did with uh, the mobile phone industry, just accelerate into the new world and not have to go through all the extra bits in between? As far as the regulator is concerned, in the UK, we've got a very good set of regulators. They are very pro new technology and they're very pro competition. So I think we all realize that there's been a lack of competition in the high street banking market for a long time. And so the Challenger Banks just didn't arrive out of nowhere. There was, I mean, that, that was a push of the entrepreneurs trying to do it, but there was a pull from the regulator saying, we will encourage you into this space. And as part of that, the cloud computing environment is part of that. But what does the regulator really care about? The regulator really cares about that you're responsible, and you're safe, and you're prudent, and you're providing an honest uh, proposition to both the banks and, and the end users. So so those are the underlying concerns. And if you can address those, then it's a detail as to where it's done. Now, and of course, we have conversations about where does the data reside. But this is something that the cloud providers, Amazon, Google, you know, and Microsoft are well aware of. They aren't fighting the regulators. They're working with the regulators to make sure that they are regulator-friendly. Obviously, it's in their interest that they would like to attract banks on, onto their hardware. So the regulator is doing its job in terms of being prudent and uh, asking the questions. But it's certainly not obstructive by any means.
0: One of the things that strikes me as a, a major difference, apart from you know being able to make this, this jump into hyperspace, almost, in terms of going onto an entirely digital platform in the cloud new design, new architecture, you now throwing away all those sort of monolithic type structures is also the fact that I think just about every bank must budget every five years for a core banking replacement virtually because, you know, if you're trying to keep up with regulations, most vendors need to come out with some sort of major update that requires new hardware, new this, new that. And, you know, I know in my experience of 300 years in the industry, you know, looking at... Um, Banks have basically got a, a five to seven year period, or something like that, before they upgrade again, and therefore they they've got this very tight time frame to sort of try and extract some value from that previous upgrade, and and it puts the. The business, as you say, not just from a, a customer cost perspective, but also from this overall need to then a big capital outlay. You know, So I imagine yours is just cloud. It, you're just upgrading it all the time. And is it Nirvana?
1: Yeah, I think, it's a, yeah, I th- I think <laughs> that's an important point. The problems, there are generic problems with software and software complexity. And it's always difficult. But something that people have learned over the last few years is continuous deployment, You a know, continuous upgrade is by far a better mechanism to do than Big Bang releases and changes. The problem is, if you're doing that, then, you know, and everything has to come together at a certain point in time and all work together, that is a hard thing to do. And typically, that is what causes these uh, huge delays. What we do, and we built the simple system, you know, got it live in pre-production environments uh, for banks, and then gradually iterated, uh, developed on it. Certainly, when I look at some of the budgets that banks have spent on IT changes, it is quite frightening. Phenomenal. Phenomenal. And do they really get a satisfactory result at, at the end of that? So we I mean, need to change the cost-based industry as well so that things can be done you know, in reasonable time and reasonable budgets, therefore freeing up budgets, either to return it to the customer or to actually do something a bit more innovative. But I would believe within some few years of time that the, the you know 100 million plus projects that seem to regularly go on banks will, will be a thing of the past.
0: I mean, I'm sure they'll welcome that. Um, Just looking at your philosophy in terms of how you built the product, you know, the open banking has hit us already, but already there was this move towards, you know, embracing a broader market around you, open API standards, this sort of thing. Do you want to just talk a little bit about your philosophy there in terms of the the openness?
1: Yes. For a start, I'm naturally in that world. Mm. I mean, when I find out the banks are somewhat reticent about you know open banking, and I would go, well, most companies would be very, very happy to put their API and embed it into somebody else's application, because that means that you know, you've got a broader reach, whereas the banks are often afraid of that, because it means that they lose the direct customer relationship. I mean, we are moving into, the infrastructure is moving into a, an API world, so that's going to happen. When it does, I think people just have to be aware that there's going to be more contact points than otherwise. It, quite where it goes... I'm not the one, you know, there there are endless articles about, you know, the payments of the future and things like that. I'm not really a great predictor of the future, really just focusing on doing the best possible job of of what's here and making sure that we're ready for whatever changes come down the line.
0: That's a perfect way to sum that up. Thanks, uh, Paul. Paul Taylor, founder and CEO of uh, Thought Machine. Thank you for joining us today.
1: Thank you for having me. Thank you for
0: your time and insights. And thank you very much for tuning in. I'm Sam. See you next
2: time. obligation to update, amend, or clarify the information in the podcast, whether as a result of new information, future events, or otherwise any securities, transactions or holdings discussed may not represent investments made by motive partners. It should not be assumed that securities, transactions or holdings discussed, if any, were or will be profitable, or that the recommendations or decisions made in the future will be similar or will equal the performance of the securities, transactions or holdings discussed herein. This podcast may contain forward-looking statements that are based on beliefs, assumptions, current expectations, estimates and predictions about the financial industry, the economy, motive partners or motive partners' investments. Nothing in the podcast should be construed or relied upon as investment, legal, accounting, tax or other professional advice or in connection with any offer or sale of securities.